Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Warlord Official Podcast. My name is Brad, uh, Old Man Morin to some, and uh, it has been a little while since the last episode. We took a holiday break, but we are back with a very big first episode in 2020. Um, we, of course, are going to be talking Stalingrad very soon. I know there's a lot of hype about bolt-action Stalingrad, but that isn't coming for a couple weeks yet. In the meantime, though, we have a huge guest on the Warlord cast. It is, how to say, he is one of the most prolific and talented game designers possibly of our generation. And I don't just say that because I absolutely adore the man's games. Um, he is the brain behind, well, he's, he's worked on many editions of some of Games Workshop's biggest games and secondary specialist games. Uh, he is the primary author of one of my favorite war games of all time, Bolt Action. Uh, but he has done a million other side projects and had his fingers in a ton of pies um, as part of his company. Of course, I'm talking River Horse. Um, and so, of course, we'd have Tales of Equestria. We would have the Hunger Games board game. We would have um, the Labyrinth game. There are just too many games to even, I mean, I could even say Pacific Rim, the game, um, which is also sold through Warlord. Of course, I'm talking about one of the greats, and I'm talking about Alessio Calvatore. Alessio, welcome to the Warlord cast. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you today, sir. Hi, Brad. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Nice to be here. Anytime, anytime. I mean, Warlord Games makes a ton of fantastic games, but one of its biggest, of course, is Bolt Action. And it is about time that we've had you on, the man who's largely responsible for that game, to talk about uh, game design, Bolt Action, um, what it's like to manage a game system that is currently out in the open, and uh, I guess the future of where things are going. There's just so many things to talk about um before we get stuck into things though i mean you've had a long and storied past in game design and the gaming industry i don't think and though we've talked many times i don't think i've ever asked how you got your start um how did you start this career <laughs> yeah that's a question i get quite often and it started uh with me um getting in love with warhammer i was mm -hmm. in italy at the time i was a university student uh, beginning of uni, so 20-year-old, something like that. Mm -hmm. I um, found Warhammer in a gaming club. Uh, I was playing role-play games before. Mm -hmm. Saw that, loved it, started to play. Uh, got some miniatures from, from the UK because in Italy you couldn't find them. Mm -hmm. uh, started a Skaven army and uh, played. And I won the Italian tournament, grand tournament, which of course was a small affair at the time. Uh, and we're talking about 94? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, 95, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, by winning the tournament, I then uh, met um, at the next tournament where I was defending the title, I met Jean-Paul Brizigotti, who was the, the boss of Games Workshop Italy at mm -hmm. the time. And they were starting translations. They were starting uh, an Italian translation for Warhammer. And I spoke good English. Uh, we chatted and basically a job offer came up. And I was like, huh, okay, I could work in the game industry. Uh, mm -hmm. Even though I was studying biology at university at the time. Oh, wow. So I, 
<laughs> yeah, it was very weird. So there was serendipitous moments when your hobbies suddenly go, oh, I can make a profession out of this? Yeah, mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I moved to the UK uh, with the idea of trying and see where, you know, how it went. Uh, froze my university studies, which you know my parents were delighted about. <laughs> yes, uh, and um, I basically started as a translator in Nottingham. Moved to Nottingham to the studio. Uh, I was a translator for about a year, uh, and then while I was there, I kept playing. I won the staff tournament of King's Workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, beating my boss, which wasn't a great move in hindsight. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, and then basically a position of games developer became available mm-hmm. and uh, luckily I was interacting with those guys all every day when I was translating roles um, I was annoying them quite a lot going so when you write this thing what do you mean uh, as I say, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a there was a relationship there and that obviously helped in landing the job and uh, I got in as a games developer and uh, well that must started- have I mean, that must have really that those interactions not only helped you to get the job, I'm sure, but um, because they knew you and knew what you were about. But I think it also probably I can only imagine that that helped you to understand sort of the mentality behind the designs of the games. Right. Before you even started designing them yourself. Yes. I mean, I was very lucky in the uh, my senior colleagues were uh, fantastic people and and they, they taught me a lot. You're right. I learned a lot from them. I mean, I was working. Uh, directly under Rick Priestley, mm-hmm. I had you know, colleagues like Jervis Johnson, Thomas Pirinen, Gav Thorp, Andy Chambers. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was Nigel Steelman. It, it was great. It was a, a great environment, and uh, all those people are really nice, and you can learn from them. And uh, they're very, you know, so, so basically, I learned on the on the field, on the field of battle, yes. and, uh, and it was a very you know important moment in teaching me and learning what I learned about games design from very nice people and really talented people. If if I can take a second to sidestep, I'm going to answer a very frequent answer uh, listener question about myself here. So I'm going to take a two-second tangent, and I will bring it right back. So I also was hired out of the Grand Tournament Circuit, and I also um, attended the very first U.S. Grand Tournament, which I believe was the first year the Italy uh, grand tournament that you're discussing, I played as a couple of years and got a reputation. Um, they actually started giving me an award as the biggest knob, which was, um, and they gave me a giant <laughs> orc head, and it was um, the loudest, most obnoxious, most fun guy to play. It wasn't best sports. It wasn't anything else. And I think my <laughs> highest placing was uh, was 21st. Um, so I never was quite as good as you, clearly. But um they did see me, and um, we played board games because we used to stay in a hotel um, because the, the Grand Tournament was entirely within a hotel, and you would come and stay. And because I was flying across country, I always stayed the night and then flew out the next morning, meaning that um, after staff packed up, we all went to the bar and played board games. Um, and so I got to know everyone, and I was hired there as well, much to my parents' chagrin. Um <laughs> and uh, just like you, I except I was hired into the uh, the corporate sales division. But um, when I beat my boss, uh, it was the uh, the acting CEO of the U.S. who you might know as uh, John Stollard. So ah. um, yes. So for those wondering how I got this podcast, um, I've worked for John Stollard, owner and you know the CEO of Warlord Games, for a very long time. Um, and to, yeah. So anyway. 
Long story <laughs> short, that's so I, I find that we have a very similar, and I also got to know uh, Jervis a little bit through that time, and I met Andy, but I worked very closely with Jeremy Vitalk in those days um, because he was head of the U.S. studio, and uh, yeah, all those guys. Uh, Dave Taylor was my roommate, and uh, yeah, very small world. Anyway, let's move on. So I'm sorry. Yeah, so sorry, you say you say you were not quite as good as me, but on the other end, I think you were probably a lot nicer than me. Yeah. I think uh, in that period, in that period, I was very. I don't think I was any fun to play against. <laughs> I was, you know, very much a you know serious uh, power player. I like to think I never cheated, but certainly I pushed the rules to the, <laughs> to the right. limit. Well, and. Uh, that I mean, that would help you later in life, though, wouldn't it? I mean, as you start to write these games, as you start to sit down to develop these games, you have to be, and I know that you also enjoy a good narrative game um, from our previous conversations. So to take to take both of those parts of your personality, if I, if you will, to and to encompass a wide span of gamers must be quite the challenge. And the fact that you've actually sort of been both of those people, I think probably helps you with that doesn't it i guess it certainly uh give me experience of what the power player is looking for or looking to or trying to do with the system you know pushing the system to the to the limits uh so that certainly is uh, formative and on the other end it also taught me that uh you know not everybody enjoys that kind of gaming and mm. i think the most important lesson that i learned there was that a good player can adapt is playing his or her playing style to the opponent, and that's the way to have fun. Mm. If you're facing somebody who is really serious and you know, like a power player, and you can play it to that level and right. you know, enjoy the game as if it was a chess game or something like that, that's mm. fine. If you meet if you meet somebody who actually likes narrative, fluffy, friendly, you know, almost role play game mm. style, and, it's, and, and the outcome doesn't really matter as long as it makes a good story, and you can do that, you can adapt to that and play for fun, and you know, like. Uh, if you can be flexible and basically make it a good experience based on you know feeling feeling the vibe from your opponent, I think that's the that's the great player. Is a player that can play both and adapt to to, to your opponent. I think. Yeah, I agree. I could I could not agree with what you just said more. Um, I think that that really is the mark of a of a good player. But likewise, the game system would likewise. I mean, there are games that are written for fluff purposes, and there are games that are written for more. Uh, hardcore modes, and then there's everything in between. And I think as a game designer, I think you'd have to be cognizant of that when you sit down to create a game. And I guess, given how many games, I know you started by working on game systems that were already developed or in development as part of your time at Games Workshop, but once you've left that and gone to work, um, you know, consulted with Warlord around uh, Bolt Action, worked with Mantic about Kings of War, and worked uh, on your own projects, you would have to start from scratch, and that is a very different um, experience. So when you sit very down to plan these things, so can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach that in your process? Yeah, uh, actually, there was uh, what you were saying about you know some games I've written for more for a relaxed style and some are more competitive. Uh, that leads perfectly into the, your question. Uh, when, when it came to bolt action, uh, I remember John Stallard, Rick, uh, Paul Sawyer, and I had a, well, a series of meetings, starting with meetings in pubs, uh, and then in offices mm -hmm. and stuff, but uh, where 
basically we were talking about you know what kind of game they wanted and uh, what the experience should have been like and i remember that uh, <laughs> there was um they were specifically told me well we would like you to write this because we would like this game to be uh tournament friendly as in <laughs> playable competitively because mm -hmm. rick said you know if i write it i, I i'm too nice <laughs> and uh, you know, because I mean, he brought fantastic systems like Black Powder, Hell Caesar, which are mm -hmm. not very tournament friendly, but they are fantastic to play. You know, right. with a bunch of friends, they make some very narrative games. Mm -hmm. It was almost like is one step towards the role play experience, uh, which you know I play that regularly with the Perry Twins, and, and it's you know mm -hmm. it's very good fun. It's just obviously not written for tournament play. Right. Uh, while Bolt Action indeed they said no, we'd like you to write it because you know you, you have that edge of nastiness that is required. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, thank you. I don't know if it's a compliment. Th thanks, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the we planned it. We planned the experience really by asking. That's what I do normally when I work for hire. When I do work for hire or for companies, uh, there's a first phase where I would bombard them with questions mm. you know i would go right how many players how long is the game how many miniatures do i have how many units do i have because that's the most important thing is right. you know like how many elements am, am i controlling uh and the element could be a single thing if it's a skirmish game or the element could be a unit of things if it's a if it's a bigger game mm. so you know, I, i'll ask tons of questions and and we discuss them and often by asking those questions, you know, uh, there are things that the the actual person that is commissioning the game haven't thought about. You're gonna go, oh, oh, we didn't think about that. Oh, how many hours should it last? Mm -hmm. Okay, how much math there should be in there? You know, do you want modifiers? You don't want modifiers. You know, uh, so the, are the dice roll modified or are the dice rolls? You know, what dice do you use? Uh, so it's all all that kind of briefing session to understand, define the, the, the thing you're going for in the first place. So that, that's very important. And, and do all of that and write it down. Because, you know, a couple of months down the line when people go, oh, I thought we were doing, I don't know, uh, the, there were no vehicles. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we said vehicles, look, look. <laughs> it's in the Britain brief. So basically a good, solid brainstorming for a brief uh, so that people describe you the experience right. of the game they have in their heads. And by describing it, they also realize a bit more what they want. Mm. <laughs> I found I found in the, you know, by doing this for several. Yeah. I hadn't <clears> even <throat> considered that the customer may not know what they actually want until you actually get through that process with them. But they, it would, I mean, that, that would be crucial, wouldn't it? Uh, it is, and uh, some people, uh, when they say, oh, I want a game for my miniature range, and they go, right, or for, for my company, whatever, uh, they, they, particularly if they're not games developers, they're, you know, sales managers, if their background is not game design, mm -hmm. they sometimes have a more generic idea of what they want, but then when you get into the specifics, uh, it's interesting, it's an interesting process where, obviously, they would bring maybe more of a commercial, you know, I'm thinking, briefing bolt action with, with John Stallard or sorry, all those people. You know, John Stallard would go, yeah, I want to sell this many boxes with this many toys mm -hmm. in them. And I go, right, how many How many men in a box? And like, oh, oh, we can put, I don't know, 10. I was like, all right, so can we make, so the unit squad, the, the unit size should be 10. It's obviously being a historical game, you also have to base it on historical mm -hmm. <laughs> consideration. So, you know, American uh, units are 12 instead of right. 10 and stuff like that. So you have all the all those considerations and the briefing process is definitely useful to to 
the more you can define what you're going for before you start writing, the, the less pain you'll have in the future when, you know, because invariably, you know, some people will change life to their mind. Mm-hmm. When they play the game, they go, oh, this is a bit slow or this is a bit too fast or this is a bit, I don't know, you know, there, there will be lots of consideration that emerge during the thing, but mm-hmm. having a good plan from the start certainly helps. Right? Nice. Well, that is, I mean, that's very in-depth. So, I guess the next question is, where do you go from there? You have you have a, sort of a synopsis put together, um, a brief, as you said. Um, you have a general idea of where you're going to go with it. What's the next step? Uh, is it coming up with a mechanic? I know in the past you've talked about the importance of, um, I, I don't want to say a gimmick, because that, that almost sounds like it cheapens the process, but sort of a mechanic that the game sort of hinges on. Um, am I... Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, we talked about this before. It's in the case of bolt action, it was the the choice, the willing choice to have a, a component, a game component mm. that was specific, unique to the game that would identify the game as oh, it's the game that does that and has that thing. Right. And obviously, we had no idea what the thing was at the beginning. Yeah. So, but there was definitely in the brief there was this: make sure it includes some thing. Mm-hmm. A, a component, a gimmick, like you say, a, 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 a something tangible that is identified, will be identified with the system, will be of this system. And uh, actually, that's what led me to start to think about the, the command dice, the order mm-hmm. dice. But the idea was okay, so I thought initially, I mean, this is just a marker. And I had cheats for the activations, and I went, wait a second, can I put these two together? Could a marker be the cheat, and therefore you draw the dice instead of mm-hmm. drawing cheat and being a marker? Uh, and uh, so the yeah, the old bag with the with the command with the other dice came about. And actually, like you do, I mean, the process. What you're saying, you're asking what the process is. Obviously, you take the brief once mm-hmm. it's solid, then have a, a good think, and then you do a first phase, which is the design phase. Uh, I distinguish between the design phase and the development phase. But so the design phase will be literally the high level stuff where you go, right? Okay. So how do I meet this brief? How do I fulfill this brief? Mm. And obviously you try, you, know, you think about experience of other games you played and things that you loved in those games. I think you didn't like in those games and try to go right. If I had to do that, the best game, what would it be? And how would I marry all of these things and yeah. create something that fulfills this brief? And, uh, so the um, the first phase is definitely you, you you just jot down some bullet points of rules. You don't do a long you don't write them all in, in long in long hand. Mm-hmm. You, you start with a skeleton of bullet points and then get playing. Obviously, you start to push toy soldiers around the table because that's the very that's possibly the, the most important part. You know, right. if it's all abstract, you you'd often just don't get anywhere. So play some soldiers push around, get a feel for it, and, you know, after a period of trying those, you go, right, this works, this doesn't work, uh, and eventually, I mean, I remember, for example, for Bolt Action, we, we started to go, what if each unit has a number of dice in, in the bag, not just one dice per unit, mm. you know, so that you have, you know, some units contribute more dice, other less, uh, and, and again, it, it was quite cumbersome, so we went, no, 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 stick to a simple one unit, one die system, mm. Uh, so we 
I was a threat. Uh, well, what if the, the, the thing in the bag actually identifies which unit is activated? Because that saves thinking time. Mm. On the other hand, it removes that choice, which is very interesting. So uh, basically, it was all trying different iterations of, of these ideas until you're kind of happy with the, with the system. You play it with the, your customers, which, you know, I, I look at it as, as an external consultant, but it could be that you're just an employee of the company and, and your customer is still, you know, is your boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you still have a customer a relationship, you know, the, so you, you have to do what your, what your, what your customer says, in this case, your boss, or in the case, you know, the people hire me as, a, as an external consultant. But so once you have your proposal, you play with the customer and to see what, whether they're happy with, you know, the brief is, Fulfilled. That's what uh, that's what the the game does, mm-hmm. and everybody is having fun. You go right. We got it. Once you once you get to that place, and it may take several iterations to get to that place, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, then that's when you go right. Now I have to write it properly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I I and... just the way you're speaking, it I had never occurred to me that because you are, I mean, because Riverhorse is in and of itself, its own company, and because you are a consultant, you actually have a very difficult job, and I guess I'll get to this when we get to FAQ writing later, because you're almost answering to two sets of customers. You're not only answering to Warlord, who were the people who hired you originally, but then to the gaming community that plays the game. That is a... I cannot imagine that that is an easy job. <laughs> no, it isn't. It isn't indeed, uh, because sometimes actually the the what the community seems to want and what the company that puts the game out want are not the same yes. thing, and you're kind of caught in between. It's like, um, <laughs> what do I do? Yeah. Oh, but that's in a way, fascinating. In a way, as a consultant, it, it, you're right. Is difficult, but on the other end, uh, my principle is I'll do what the customer says. So ultimately, it's not my game. So the ultimate decision is the companies right. and that actually is quite influential in faqs uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later mm. uh, there are both when you say you know i wouldn't do this because of this reason this reason this reason but i understand why you're doing this because of this reason, this is reason so mm-hmm. you know if you want to do it let's do it i mean it's your game is not and, and which is you know after all it's important to understand it's not my game if i write it for you it's your game right, <laughs> so i right. have to do what you say ultimately yeah i mean you may manage the game but as you say someone else owns it um well i'm sorry i interrupted there but and i think we but we'll come back when we get to the faqing stage but um so then you actually sit down with your outline um your skeleton so to speak and you actually write the game in and of itself yeah yes and uh, in that when it came to Bolt Action, Kings of War, stuff like those games, um, suddenly the the experience of having worked for many years in Games Workshop, doing several editions of their their rule books, etc., was you know fundamental, mm. and that's where I learned. And uh, basically, I have the big advantage that I kind of know what you need to say in which order you need to say things right. to for a war game. And there's no perfect answer, of course. Every system is slightly different. There's a very often when you write a rule book, there's a chicken and egg thing. Mm-hmm. So where where you know I have to teach you about movement, uh, but I haven't talked. I have to teach you about I don't know shooting, but I haven't explained how casualties work. So y- y- you you have to use some concepts that you haven't explained yet. Mm-hmm. So you have to go right. Oh, this will be explained on page seventy three, but or as explained later. So you is there was difficult in which order to present the information, and again I don't think there's a you know do I have to tell you how 
to set up a game at the beginning of the rulebook or right. to set up a game in, in a later section of the rulebook when we talk about the game mm-hmm. as opposed to the mechanic. So there's a, you know, there's, there's a few choices that can be made, but I've, uh, I'm lucky enough that I've written several rulebooks of, that make different choices so I can kind of go and, well, I think this is the best one for this particular you know, situation. Yeah, exactly. So, and as uh, someone who plays your games, um, I think you do it well. So let me let me say that for yeah. you. I think you have a a very um, you're very talented at being able to say the or place the information in the order that it should be in, so you can easily find it and get to it. Um, so, oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> as someone who doesn't always enjoy reading rules, um, I do like reading yours. So yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, you know, when you said uh, somebody who plays the game, I mean, I, I think an important part of it is that also I play games still. Mm. You know, I, I, not as much as I used to, of course. I'm, I'm older, I have a family, I have a young daughter, etc. Mm-hmm. So my time is not quite what it used to be, but uh, the amount of time available. But um, I have a company to run as well. <laughs> so so exactly. plenty of stuff to do. Not as much time for gaming, but I do try to keep playing. I think that's an important thing because uh, then your experience becomes a bit more hands-on and uh, less abstract, let's put it this way. Absolutely, absolutely. So once you have your basic rules written, where does it go from there? Yeah, so you write it longhand and then uh, basically a process of development starts mm. so we go from the design phase into the into the development phase where basically you and you have to be disciplined i mean in this stage discipline is really important uh you have to go right okay i've written it this is version one for example mm-hmm. right version one print it have it nice and there and solid and then play games play games play games play games make notes during the games mm-hmm. resist the temptation to change things on the fly mm-hmm. because it's easy when you when you play testing to go oh oh let's try something different let's try this and, and you keep changing the thing that you have written all the yeah. time and, and therefore you invalidate things and because you know in a rule book you change one thing and that changes three other things in different parts of the rule book you know mm-hmm. you change how you... so so it's very Important. I think discipline there is very important of just going right. Take a, take this game, play it as written, make notes, make notes, make notes, play several games, and then go right. Stop. Yeah. Now we do a review phase where we go right. Look at all these notes. Discuss with somebody. Important to have somebody to to, to discuss things with. And obviously with with Bolt Action, I was very lucky having Rick Priestley. Just so my, just a just my, just a nice guy who doesn't know much. Uh, no, uh, of course Rick's also one of the greats. So the fact that the two of you were able to collaborate, I think, uh, is one of the reasons why Bolt Action is such a special game system. Well, Rick is my mentor, my guru, uh, the person that I learned most from, I guess, from 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 experience. So I have a huge respect for Rick, mm. and uh, and then having you know him available to, to with his immense experience available to uh, to confront myself with to make mm-hmm. choices and decisions and uh, ideas and you know it's very funny because often i go oh i had this great idea for this and completely innovative rule that nobody's ever thought about and it works like this and rick goes yeah that was in this game from 1982 i was like what <laughs> you mean somebody thought of this before no <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> so yes, no, I, 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 that happened quite a lot. It was funny, uh, but anyway. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, yeah, basically, you have a phase where you review your notes, decide what changes to make, 
mm-hmm. implement the changes, and you have to be very careful when you do that because if you make a change, you can bet that you know there will be repercussions in other bits of rules somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So again, very careful with the changes with the implementation. Basically, and then write a version two to make all these things. This is version two. Right now, version two, print it out again. Is that discipline? Print out version two. Play lots of games with version mm-hmm. two. Accumulate notes. Then uh, stop it. Then have a debate phase. Make your notes. Make your corrections. Phase. Print version three and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And that, of course, is a process that could continue forever. Yeah. Because uh, it, it's never perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, with so many variables as a war game or even a board game is more contained. But still, you know, there's so many changes in involvement and possibility also because mm. you know there's a threat of taste often there is no right or wrong answer ah, sorry there is you know some people prefer a bit this version some people prefer a bit that version as a designer as the lead designer you have to make the call and eventually again if you're writing for somebody else they make the call you make right. some you make recommendations suggestions but ultimately you know <laughs> again it's not your game mm. um so that process continues and basically continues as long as you are allowed to mm-hmm. or you're yeah. paid for, I guess. Exactly. But the idea is uh, at some point somebody will go, stop, yeah. <laughs> this product is ready, <laughs> must bring it out. That's normally Paul Sawyer going, stop developing this thing, it's good enough. Yeah. Because your instincts will always say that it's never good enough. Um <clears throat> So at some point somebody goes, yep, yeah, need to put it into layout, and then your manuscript is gone, it's put into a laid out version, and and then you have to do the diagrams, which is very difficult. It's very difficult to get the diagrams yeah. right. I mean, it's something that I experienced is because obviously, unless you are so skilled to be both a graphic designer and a game designer, then you have you're working with a graphic designer person mm-hmm. and you have to be very careful, you know, to because diagrams are very precise. You know, this model has to be one millimeter to the left so that actually the line of fire crosses that hedge over there so that mm-hmm. I can talk about cover saves and stuff. So it's very, very precise work and it definitely requires the, the designer to work with the graphic designer, the game designer, the two of them to work together because uh, obviously there's different skills there and, uh, and you need to make it work. So layout, diagrams, chapters, header priority, very important for the logic of the rules. You know, mm. this is a header three, and these two next rules are under that one, you know, and you have to show it in the rule book. Mm-hmm. So uh, all the layouts, the sections, the, the breakdown of it, so very important, difficult, you know, job that requires quite a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, in the layout process, something always goes wrong. There's always the, oh, I copied and replaced this, term and how oh dear what happened and oh this paragraph half a paragraph has disappeared below this picture so mm-hmm. now the rules stop this sentence stops where is the bit that talks about this other thing well it's gone where is it oh it's under this picture here so there's always something because obviously there's a lot of mechanical work on the manuscript on the on the text so <laughs> that you have to go check everything and make sure that all the text is more or less where it used to be nothing's got deleted by mistake or added or whatever so there's an interesting period there. And yeah. then... Once you're, and very once important. You're yes. Yes. Very. Because the change between a manuscript of text into a laid out book with pictures, diagrams, and all of that does a lot of kind of mayhem to your text. And therefore, you have to make sure that it's kind of all there. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, and then, yeah, then ideally you then keep playtesting it for just the final tweaks, you know, how many mm-hmm. points should this thing be? Because, again, the points values are, again, a completely different cattle fish. You have to decide, mm-hmm. create a new points value system is, you know, a lot of maths, a lot of formulas, mm-hmm. a lot of adjusting things and go, ooh, you know, what is, you know, how do you, how many points is it going from a light anti-tangan to a heavy anti-tangan? How many points is from a heavy tank to a medium tank, etc.? Mm-hmm. Uh, from a veteran trooper to a, to a, to a, to a regular to an experience so you have to decide all that and try it and make sure and balance it so yeah not a not a simple operation but uh mm-hmm. eventually you will have somebody will you know publish it and is gone is in the public eye mm-hmm. and uh, it's written and it's written down and uh, you cannot change it anymore if you find nope. a mistake and stuff like that and that's a different, completely different experience, which I think is something we are going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, once, I mean, gamers are notorious for wanting to, I mean, literally, the, the number of gamers who I talk to that proudly say that they break game systems as a hobby, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't think of a single other hobby in the world where people go, you know what, that thing I love, I'm going to go break it. I'm going to see if I can make this not work. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I, mechanics don't even do that. Um, gearheads. I have several people with cars, and they always try to make things work. And yet, we as gamers always seem to try and break things, try and break rule sets for their own benefit. Um, and so, I imagine that once it goes to the public, uh, particularly a gaming public, um, where there is such an, I don't know, a a prolific uh, desire to. Um, to throw a monkey into the wrench of the thing that you've spent so long working on, I can't imagine that's an easy process to uh, to 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 wait for that feedback, um, and then to, I mean, I guess that gets to the next stage of um, what happens once the game's out there and when we can start talking about FAQs, for example, um, because I can't imagine that you'd want to knee jerk throw that out right away i know game systems like warhammer in recent editions have been putting out faqs thick and fast but if you keep doing that all of a sudden you end up with bloated rule sets that are constantly changing that people have a hard time knowing what game they're actually playing when they sit down against their opponent so i imagine that there's a balance in there um i'm just sort of throwing a lot of things at you here Talk to us about what it's like from your experience once a game's gone public and you then turn into sort of a, a, a more long-term manager of that game system. Manager is definitely the right word. Uh, definitely, game comes out, uh, if you've done a good enough job, it's not broken. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, people are you know, people just uh, arguing about what's better, what's not so good, you know, mm-hmm. what... what units are more powerful etc but if people are talking about that then it's good exactly you know, if you have gone if you have gone you know, people go oh this system is completely broken unplayable so, yeah, i've seen game system going out like that and definitely that's a nightmare uh, so luckily i don't think i leave that nightmare but uh, i have seen it and it's not nice but uh, yeah. you know recall yeah. this uh, make the usual use your ratas so luckily, if your game is all right and uh, only arguably broken as opposed to completely broken, <laughs> then <Right. laughs> then uh, you can you know, start to manage it uh, in in its lifetime on its, on the shelf. Mm. So um, I what you said about um, a game that is constantly changing, 
uh, highlight my philosophy with uh, erratas and FAQs. Mm. Uh, there's, I think, two main philosophies there. One is some companies, some people, uh, designers, would change the game through errata uh, for something they're not happy with. Mm. Uh, oh, this is a bit... Oh, I, I think I would like it to work like that to make an errata and change it, which, uh, like, you know, for balance reasons and stuff like that. It's something that I don't do whenever, <laughs> you know, whenever my customer... I mean, if it's my game, I don't do if it's a, if it's a customer. If I'm working for somebody else, I would definitely recommend not doing it mm. uh, and resist as much as I can doing it. Uh, it's because, in my opinion... Erratas and FAQs are to be used only to clarify things that are not clear, genuine mistakes, uh, things that are obviously not working, mm. uh, as opposed to, oh, this could be better like that, or let's change the balance, let's, let's address these more abstract, more, more arguable issues. Um, for example, uh, you know, if you say, uh, it says, this is 17 points here, and he says it's 20 points in this other book. That, that's clearly an errata. You know, just, so is yeah. it 17 or is it 20? <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, Simple. Exactly. Uh, when there's a bit in a rule that says, oh, you can do this when you don't have a line of sight, and the rule that says you can do this when you do have a line of sight, and you go, right, well, these are clearly contradicting each other. So which one is it? Do you need line of sight or not? And you, <clears throat> that's the errata, perfect. Like, yes, you do. So this bit here that says you don't is wrong. So that... If it could be just that, I think that would be my ideal situation with, mm. with errata and FAQs. Uh, I only, and again, specifically the difference between an errata and an FAQ in my head is an errata is literally the text is wrong. It is replaced by this text. Yeah? Okay. So it doesn't say 22 is 25, uh, or it doesn't say you don't have, change it to you do have. So literally a change of the text that fixes that this text replaces that text. Uh, I think it was a bit softer. It's uh, maybe a, a rule that because of commas, because of the way the sentence is written, could be read like that or like that. Uh, you know, is that classic example of uh, was it the panda that eats, shoots, and leaves? Yes. Uh, eats, shoots, and leaves with mm. commas is very different from eats, shoots, and leaves without commas. Um, so uh, oh, then the FAQ is a bit more like, yeah, you explain this rule could be right like that could be right like that i don't know what the intent is this this you should read it this way um so it's slightly fluffier um than, than an errata if um in some cases there will be so that is that is my principle and what i do normally do is uh is <clears throat> when the game is out because i play the game because i look at the community feedback, uh, you know, social media, normally Facebook tends to be my choice. Mm. Uh, I, you know, monitor a bit of that. Very importantly, the customer services guys at Warlord, mm. they answer rules questions from the, from the community, from uh, emails from the community. And uh, I work very closely with them. Uh, the idea is they, what I tend to brief the, the team uh, and referees at tournaments and whenever I'm involved with this kind of rules contact with the, with the community, mm -hmm. <clears throat> my brief is normally, look guys, 
our job is not to answer questions because we think the answer is A, B, or C. What mm. we think doesn't matter. Right. Our job, our job is to look it up in the rule book or in the army book or in the whatever book where find the answer to the question, show the answer to the customer, show where it is, show where the answer is, because that way the customer is not just oh so and so told me that. No, no, no. The customer goes, oh, it's here. It's on page 72 of the rule book, third paragraph to the left, this bit here. This is where he explains it. That's our job, is to show the, where the answer is, not to answer, oh, I think it's like that. Oh, I think it should work like that. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, frankly, I, I don't think I have that ability or, or you know, or, or even authority to do that kind of stuff. Because, you know, I, you, you cannot keep all of that stuff all in your head all the time. What do I do if I'm not so sure? I, I'll go and look look it up. And you teach people, and that person will know where it is and will show it to other people. And it, it's, that's the job of answering questions. Right. And sometimes there is the bit where you go, I don't know what it is, what this is. And then you mm -hmm. ask your colleagues, you ask me. So again, some of the mail order, uh, the sorry, the customer service guys of Warlord, if they don't know where where it is, they ask me. Yeah. Effectively, all the, the more difficult ones tend to funnel down to me where I go, ooh, ah, um, yes, it's here, mm -hmm. and show them so that they, they again learn it and they can show it to the customers. Or I go, ooh, right, oh, there is no answer to this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is effectively a genuine errata or FAQ that needs answering. Yeah, the rule book is either doesn't answer that at all or is ambiguous about it or contradicts itself somewhere or this book more often is, an army book, uh, another book contradicts the rule book, so there's a conflict, because also those books are written by different people. I was about to say, because Bolt Action isn't just written by you, each of the campaign books and the other books that have come out since its initial release, and even since its uh, second edition reboot, have been written by other people. Now, you are still part of that process, but, I mean, you're not, you haven't written it, so inconsistencies can arise. Well, yeah, I mean, I, the process is that people, the authors write the, the, the supplements. I read them and edit them mm -hmm. together with Paul Sawyer, together with other people. Warlord. I mean, there's, a, there's an editing process. So my side of the editing is trying exactly to make sure that the rules match the rules in the rulebook and in the Army Zone. I am definitely closer to the rulebook and the Army Zone series of books. Those have been definitely... <laughs> I've been very, very heavily involved with playtesting them and everything. While for the for the other books, it tends to be I'm just involved as an editor, really, rather than mm -hmm. a playtester or anything like that. So I'm I'm less involved with those, um, but still involved, like you said. Right. Uh, and, but on the other end, there's so many, so much text, so much pressure that obviously you cannot spot every single thing. Something you will miss. You go, oh. Oh, did he say you know this word as opposed to that word? I missed that. Damn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know we're all we're all humans. We make mistakes, and mm -hmm. also because your brain is fantastic at tricking you, making you think you read something where you actually haven't, because <laughs> you know, uh, because you're not reading carefully enough. Um, I think I found that actually, as an aside, translating things is fantastic from that point of view. When you're rendering a rule in a different language. 
your brain does a very different process. You have to understand every word, and you know. And so, actually, translating things is fantastic for spotting inconsistencies. <laughs> I remember that from from being a translator. But uh, anyway, it's funny you say all this. As a primary school teacher in my day job, I've literally been teaching revising this week, and uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of what you're saying uh, rings true. So yes, it's funny how that uh, as the English language or any language in general just works that way. Yeah, it's the brain, isn't it? Uh, is mm. you know when you speak, even you 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 don't think everything you say. You, you don't analyze everything you say, of course, as you as you speak, as you or as you read. But anyway, um, so yeah, the the process is customer asks questions. I train, help the team to answer the question by pointing where the answer is in the books. If that's not possible, then I'll I'll. I write our FAQ it and I go, okay, that's a genuine problem. The, the rule book is not clear or the book is not clear. Need to put it in the errata. And because we keep producing new books all the time, then the errata and FAQs keeps growing all the time. Because, right. you know, if you have only one thing, <laughs> it's one thing. But obviously, this is a huge series of books that keeps growing. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's an entire so, section of my bookshelf. Uh, yes, there are a lot of books for the uh, Bolt Action did, game. Did. Mm. By different people, so with more or less inconsistencies, and mm-hmm. you know, because some authors maybe are better in the in the historical side and not so much in the gaming side, and vice versa. So you know, right. there's definitely styles, different perceptions, different ways to write. So yeah, it's uh, it's like herding cats in a way. There's a <laughs> lot of different ways of writing the same rule. You know, it's like oh, minefields. There's I don't know how many versions of minefields because you know, authors have a different feel for it, etc. Mm. And you know, you want to allow creativity and uh, so that people can try different ones etc so uh, different variants of different minefields you know mm. jungle the pacific and the booby traps there will not be the same as, as a big huge minefield uh, in the, on the eastern front and stuff so Correct. so it's all it's fun but it gets obviously a bit of a, a jungle of rules there um so yeah we update the rules the faqs so what i do there is i have uh, the latest write an FAQ that we put out as a PDF. And during the next months after the, the write an FAQ comes out, I, again, because I interact with the, with the customer service team, all every time I tell one of those guys, oh, yeah, this is actually an errata because this is not answered in the rule book, what I'll do is I'll make a note. You know, you can add a comment to your PDF. I'll click on the right spot and put a comment there that says, this is the question. This is needs to be the answer. Mm-hmm. So uh, I make a note of new things that come up. A lot of things are on the new books, but some things keep coming up about the old books as well, of course, including the rule book. Occasionally mm-hmm. there's a, oh, how about that? There's like, ah, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Accumulate of those. Keep it about three months. So I think we committed to do it quarterly now. Uh, and basically then produce add those things into the text, mm-hmm. make a new PDF with the new rules in there, sorry, with a new errata and FAQ in there, and color them in a different color so that mm-hmm. uh, people can see what have been added, and uh, release a new errata and FAQ and start again. <laughs> That's the, the process. Well, I, I think um, this is particularly poignant and timely given that we've recently had an FAQ, uh, just recently, uh, and in that FAQ, uh, I have to say it was 
because and it is super handy that the new changes as you say are in another color so it's very easy to find what's changed in the game if you keep up with the faqs from faq to faq um and i was surprised and i guess it occurred to me that i shouldn't be surprised bolt action's been out for quite a while it is a developed system um a lot of the books have been out for years and people have been playing them that that there are 25 pages of faqs for the entire shelf of books that i'm looking at right now um and of those 25 pages there's less than a page of new material in that faq or updated material maybe three quarters of a page um so i was surprised at how little actually needed faqing or changing and i guess that's not surprising given sort of how good game or what a good game bolt action is to start with and what pains you guys went to to tighten up first to second edition not i mean i I think that sells the first edition short. Sorry. Let me uh, rein this in a little bit then and get to my question. Given the scope of um, the most recent FAQs, um, a lot of people seem to focus on one FAQ in particular, and that was um, Tiger Fear. Now, (laughs) I know, for example, um, that you don't like to change rules. I mean, you said that before. Um, You like to... Uh, clear up inconsistencies, you like to clarify things, but you don't usually like to change how things overall work. Um, However, this was an actual change to a rule. Could you talk maybe a little bit about how that process uh, came into being, um, given that it is a little bit different than how you usually do things? Yep, indeed. And and that was an interesting decision there, and a conflicted decision, in the sense that uh, basically... Uh, like you said, I don't like changing rules, and that definitely mm. is a change because Tiger Fear, though uh, people may like it or dislike it, or quite a few people disliked it mm. in the original format in the, in the in the German Army book, was not unclear. Right, it was clear. Therefore, in my opinion, it didn't require an errata on FAQ. Mm. It required monitoring, and uh, certainly, you know, if we find that that was game breaking, then obviously it wouldn't have needed. To, change in a future edition mm. uh, but that's the line that's the line is it game breaking or not and at some point the pressure from the community uh, and from authors that are writing books for us so both an, an external and an internal pressure um, there was so much feedback that again this came up in meetings and uh, the the conversation of whether we should or shouldn't uh, change a rule by a rata Mm-hmm. which I am against. But, you know, in the meetings, it was discussed. The The majority was for changing it, and ultimately, the, again, the choice was made to uh, to change it. So once the, the decision has been made, um, obviously I need to implement that as best as my ability. I mean, it would be stupid to say, oh, I didn't want to do this, therefore, I, <laughs> therefore I'll make a terrible job out of right. it. <laughs> exactly. Very silly. So, uh, so I went, okay, right, let's change it. And again, change it how... There were many different proposals on mm-hmm. how to change it. Um, it was interesting that I mean that some of the suggestions from the community were was to that the problem really with Tiger Fear is not so much with the rule but with the Panzer Four, right? <laughs> Which is H one, the one with the long barrel. So the mm-hmm. problem being that is uh, the cheapest 
tank that can actually carry that rule and therefore makes it more accessible. Because it's a powerful rule, but if it's only tied to models that cost 500 points or right. more, Tiger 1s, Tiger 2s, etc., big, big, big cats, mm -hmm. then, <clears throat> then it's not so much of an issue because you pay a lot of points for a powerful rule. Right. It was felt that the Panzer IV was a bit of a, you know, oh, it's too easy to get that rule. Uh, so why don't we just take it away from the Panzer IV was one of the suggestions. And... Uh, <laughs> And of course, the the point is that from a historical point of view, that's if you want it, basically, the rule exists because of the Panzer IV. Correct. <laughs> that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. The point is, allied troops mistaking much less powerful vehicles like particularly the Panzer IV with a long barrel mm -hmm. for a Tiger. Right. So, and the whole point of Tiger Fear is that is you're mistaking this not-so-scary tank and think it's the very scary tank. Right. So, actually, in a way, historically speaking, it should have been the other way around. We should have taken it away from all the expensive tanks because, of course, the Tiger II is scary, just because it is scary. The same way as, as a Pershing is scary, the same way a Joseph Stalin II is scary. Exactly. It's just scary. I don't need a rule for that. I, I might just go, oh, my God, look at the gun on that thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how do I kill it? Kind of thing. Uh, so the, 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 the Tiger II doesn't need that rule. What needs the rule is the Panzer IV. Right. <laughs> because that's the point of the rule. The rule is, oh, my God, I'm afraid of this thing, which is not a tiger, but I think it's a tiger. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so basically, uh, as if we cannot change it that way, we thought of what else. You know, what can we do? And there were several options. Mm. The one I, the options I decided for in the end was to limit the range of, right. the, of the rule because um, basically I thought the, the rule in itself is not broken. Uh, let's just make, what feels a bit strange is that, and, and unfair to the to the people on the receiving end is of course that that Tiger or that Panzer Four is like, you know, on the other side of the table. Unfortunately, I can see it. So my unit here is affected. And there are not really many rules that do that. You know, normally right. everything has a certain range because the game is designed to work mm. in on a six by four table. That's why, you know, a rifle is 24 inches range. And so ranges are not realistic in proportion to the models. The ranges are designed to work on, on a table like that. Mm. Because, it, <clears throat> of course, the system in, implies that there's mist, there's... The the, the 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 real terrain is not flat like a table that it has ups and downs contours so so the idea is visibility is limited should be limited and the fact that that, that tank over there miles away can affect my squad that is you know completely on the other side of the table has no chance of affecting the tank right. but is affected by the tank that was the to me the thing that felt more unnatural so I went okay let's reduce the range make give it a range. Rather, mm -hmm. rather than just give it a range, so that has two effects. One is the it feels more appropriate, as in this tank is scary, but for units that are engaged with the tank, not right. units that may may not even be aware the tank exists over there. And also, in a from a game side point of view, it means that your tank has to come forward, has to engage and scare the units that you want to use your rule for, mm -hmm. which in turn makes you more vulnerable. Because right. clearly, you become you become more in range of weapons like bazookas and stuff, and also it becomes easier to outflank you and hit you in the in the, the side and right. the rear. So uh, you're trading some of your. You cannot just stand on a hill over there shooting your long gun, <laughs> your long range gun and, and things, mm -hmm. and affecting the entire enemy army. So uh, it makes it a bit more interesting to play mm. uh, to use, uh, and 
so we I wrote the errata, put it down, and actually, interestingly, uh, apart from people that obviously didn't like the, how that it was fixed, there was also a, a, an interesting bit of feedback about the the fact that I wrote that you can pre-measure. Mm -hmm. So you can say, yeah, measure if the unit is within 12 before you choose what to do with the unit. Mm -hmm. And that was a classic, I didn't think it through well enough. Or when we played it once, we weren't too competitive with it. We were just fluffy. Mm -hmm. But of course, from a competitive point of view, the feedback was, ah, but you can abuse this by using it to pre-measure, measure things to other units. So it is all pre-measuring. Though, I mean, it's similar to other rules like the uh, human snap to action kind of right. thing from the office. You can pre-measure, but because this is, you can pre-measure to enemies, while actually the, the, the officer one, you can pre-measure to friends, it feels right. less aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, basically, the, the feedback was, maybe you should you should decide what a unit is doing and then measure the range to see whether you're affected by tiger fear. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll probably change that. But what I was very keen passing on to the community, and I'm hoping people will listen to this podcast, is please try it. Because when I tried it, when I played with it, I felt I was happy. I was definitely felt, oh, this is more interesting. This is better. I, I enjoy the game more like this. Um, because again, that tank is coming in in the middle of the street, it's scaring me, it's a scary thing, it's affecting what my units are doing, but the units that are around it, the units that are in the houses next to it, etc., not this thing that is miles away. So, so it felt better, I enjoyed the game more. Right. And I would just invite people, just please play play the game, play, see how it feels, give us your feedback, of course we're listening, in three months we'll, we'll update it, I'll probably change the text to say measure... Um, after you decided what to do, not before what you do. Right. Uh, so, you know, but so again, that's useful feedback, but I definitely think the important thing is to try it. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is easy to, uh, especially in today's day and age of social media to knee jerk reaction to everything you read. I mean, literally sensationalist news, that's what we come to expect and we're almost trained to do. But, um, as you say, there is no accounting for actual firsthand experience and getting boots on the table, so to speak, and actually trying it. And then giving that feedback, because it's one thing to, uh, you know, to, to express your feelings about something, but whether or not you've actually tried it and then had an opinion about it, it, it makes a big difference. Um, I mean, it, it's one thing to read something. It's another thing to actually have experience with it and to find out if it needs fixing or if it actually works the way you've suggested. So, yeah, I, I think that's a very wise point that you just made that um, guys go out and try it. And then if you have feedback, send it in. True. And I mean, one other bit of feedback that was off there a lot is like, oh, the Panzer IV, you know, should cost more because it has this rule and et cetera. But actually, again, in, in terms of the balance of the armies, I mean, uh, so if you think like that, then an American Arab server should cost more because it, it shoots twice kind mm -hmm. of thing. So, we don't do that, you know. We tend to <clears throat> leave the, the army special rules to, to balance themselves out. Right. So... Yeah, anyway, so it's nice. an interesting talk. We could it talk is. about it for a <laughs> well, well, let's, but rather than getting into the nitty gritties of Marines getting stubborn and how amphilet launchers work against vehicles, let's actually take a sidestep and talk about the future. Um, now, speaking of uh, online communities and uh, vocal chat rooms and social media and Facebook and all of this, there has been uh, occasional rumblings, I think because we got version 2 fairly quickly in the piece. I mean, version 1 was out for bolt action was 
was it five years, four years before we got the second edition? I'm not exactly. Something like that. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Um, but then I think, uh, you know, we still got a couple years left, at least if we're going to follow the same time frame. But um, a lot of people have been sort of rumbling about mentioning third edition. Um, now, Paul Sawyer did make a video, and it was put out by Warlord at the end of 2019, saying that that is not even a glimmer in anyone's eye. Um, as the as the man who would actually write third edition, um, can you talk about um, your role as manager of Bolt Action and the future editions of the game? <clears throat> yeah, uh, well, certainly... Uh... Uh, it's not a 100% guarantee that I will be the man doing the next edition of Bolt Action, but um, I like to think so. And from mm. what Warlock tell me at the moment, uh, I would be. Right. <laughs> that will entirely depend on our relationship at the time. Right. But right. Uh, I would like to, and they mm. seem to like to the at the moment. So at the moment, yes, I would be the one. Um, and as far as I know, as far as they told me, there is nothing on my schedule, on my brief, or anything to for a third edition. So, uh, as far as I know, it's not on the horizon, it's not on the schedule, it's nowhere near, not, nothing. It is a conversation that you have at pubs and things. and mm -hmm. <laughs> It's not a, it's not a in the works thing. It's, it's of course, it's an ongoing conversation, whether we should, when, how, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting topic. Like, you know, when you do it, what, what do you do? Do you, do you just do the rule book like we did for the between first and second edition, mm -hmm. or do we do all the army books, all the armies of? Uh, because obviously, if you do that, then you can uh, adjust point values, etc. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if you don't do that, you cannot adjust point values, which is a big difference. It is. So, um, it's an interesting conversation. It's ongoing. Uh, of course, I have uh, you know my notes of what I think I would like to address in the in the next edition when mm -hmm. it comes. I mean. For example, uh, I think there's always the the, 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 the machine guns conversation where the machine guns mm -hmm. are good enough, not good enough. And the, the, between what first and second, we addressed it by adding one um, one one shot to the mm -hmm. machine guns. And um, because again, changing completely the way it worked, we tried the extra pinning, etc. But that was too powerful, and it was <laughs> everything was pinned everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so the game became very static. Uh, so we went, okay, now let's just progress it a little bit. Because again, without changing the points, giving an extra shot that's obviously measurably making them better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so again, evolution versus revolution, um, <clears throat> which is what I prefer. Mm. Um, because when you revolutionize things, then you fix some problems but you open some new ones so i don't think oh, yeah. you know, it's very very dangerous so um <clears throat> so again what do we do and at the moment i think the biggest problem i i have with machine guns is the difference between uh vehicle mounted ones and uh infantry ones because mm. at the moment i think machine guns on tanks are possibly even too good while the ones and they makes the other ones feel not good enough when you mm -hmm. have you know ten shots because you're firing the the classical and the hull mounted mm -hmm. machine gun from the tank. Uh, you know, with a better point of view, higher point of view from from a tough. Thing. So it and makes mobility. those yeah, absolutely very effective. And actually, in reality, from what I know, because luckily for me, I've never you know been in a in an armor fighting vehicle in, mm. in a battle, and I hope I won't be ever. But uh, from what I hear from accounts and reading books is that certainly you know you're firing through this little 
vision slit while the thing is bombing up and down. And so you're really kind of spraying a bit in the air. You're not really <laughs> aiming very carefully at anything. Right. Um, so I think vehicle-mounted machine guns should be penalized. Mm. How to penalize them or, or or the other one should be improved. I mean, basically, I think I would like to address the, the difference between the ones fired by infantry guys on the ground right. with a solid fixed base, which means they can aim the fire properly, as opposed to the ones on, you know, on the vehicles, which are mostly for, <laughs> you know, not, not a, nowhere near as effective. And, and therefore, exactly. <clears throat> I think it's that balance that I like to address and look mm. at. So notes like that, things like that, that I keep notes of, and or, or the squad full strength, because we went to try to encourage people to fill the squad at 10 men, as opposed to two, two teams of five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I don't think we went far enough. I think this still, I'm still, when I play in tournaments, I'm still more tempted to field my US Army as six and six as mm-hmm. opposed to 12. And therefore I go, like, yeah, maybe that should be looked at again and stuff. So I have my notes, and the community, of course, has feedback that they, they let us know. But mm-hmm. uh, as it's an ongoing process, it always continues. You know, when I said at the beginning that you never finish the development process ever, even right. when the game is up. So obviously the game is still looked at, and you know I think I look at things that I like to address. But as far as I know, it's nowhere near anybody's schedule at really? the moment, so it's not um, yeah. not happening anytime soon. For well, sure. as I, I actually love the suggestions that uh, you just threw out there, I think those would be fantastic additions to the game. Uh, while you, while I do think that, I am still enjoying playing second edition, and I'm still uh, loving it. So uh, I'm in no hurry for version three. But uh, I do look forward to uh, the day if it eventually comes out, um, knowing that it will have you know some tweaks and love in it. And I loved what the the game did between first and second edition. So if it does advance into the third edition at some point, I look forward to that as well. But um, oh, absolutely, yeah, you have a very good point there. You know, if it ain't broke, <laughs> don't fix don't it. Fix it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> absolutely, that is a very big consideration of. Look, the game is fun. It works. People mm-hmm. play it and love it and stuff. So, you know, changing it, it's a big risk. <laughs> it's yeah. a big thing. It's like, yeah, let's not break the game that does really well. <laughs> so yeah. Why do we need to do that? Okay, yeah. So there is a element of that, of course. <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, a lot of people who, you know, maybe want something different, want something that, you know, want to do something new, um, maybe try a new army. Try a different way of playing. Um, there are lots of different styles to the way that you can play bolt action. You don't have to play the same army every time um, or a same variation of the same army every time. Um, and I think uh, I, I, game, a game like bolt action just has so many nooks and crannies and different ways to play that, you know, uh, there's lots to explore. So uh, rather than Absolutely. asking for a brand new edition, um, as you say, where you do get that danger, um, though I, I am comfortable with the game in your hands, uh, I definitely think that, um, you know, anytime you do put out a massive rule set change, um, you know, there's a chance that maybe the game won't be what I'm looking for anymore. I don't think that's going to be the case. But, you know, I'm perfectly happy playing second edition because, as you say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, very good point. I mean, if you look for variety, there's different armies. And even within the same army, mm-hmm. you could play an armor platoon as opposed to a reinforced platoon. You could play, you know, a small elite force versus a big mm-hmm. mass force. You know, 
play a regular army, an inexperienced army, a, a exactly. veteran army with very few units and a big tank. I mean, so much variety in a, just in, a, in an army. So, uh, you know, there's ways of refreshing the experience without actually changing the system if the system works. Absolutely. Exactly. My next event that I'm preparing for literally right now is a armored uh, tank platoon event. So I'm looking forward to uh, finishing up some infantry to go with my existing tanks and uh, painting their transports to make sure I'm ready to uh, take them on the tabletop. But, you know, that will be... Uh, a new experience for me for that army, and I'm looking forward to putting them down and uh, having some fun. Good but, point. Yeah. Well, Alessio, I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Um, I know that when you came on today, um, we just had a very brief uh, list of things to talk about, and uh, I, I, w I didn't think we'd actually get to a full episode length, um, but... <laughs> uh, I, I think it, I think it is great for people to hear how much i mean just how much goes into the creation and development of the games that we play um thank you for taking the time to go in in depth even though you were just giving us you know a ballpark idea for sort of each category of the process um just your explanation really helped open my eyes in a lot of ways and i'm sure the listeners would agree that this has been a very illuminating episode of the warlord cast and Really, thank you for taking the time to do that, because um, though it is your day-to-day -day life, um, some of us may take your process for granted, and hearing you go through it might open up, you know, change our perception of the game that we love that and we play and the way we go about playing it. So thank you. No, thank you for listening. <laughs> I like to talk about stuff, obviously. <laughs> well, we love, to we love to have you come on and talk. So anytime you feel like coming back to the Warlord cast, please do. We would... Uh, we, of course, always welcome you back. Um, guys, if, if you have any feedback um, for us, I know we have been away for a little while. Um, I also wanted to thank you as the listener for taking the time to listen today. Um, if you would like to hear anything in particular, uh, keeping in mind the next episode, of course, is Bolt Action Stalingrad. Uh, and then there are a few other bits and pieces coming down the pipe that I'm very excited to talk about, but can't quite talk about yet. Um, we do take uh, suggestions for future episodes. We do love to hear what your thoughts are. Um, now, this podcast itself does not have its own Facebook page. However, if you go to um, the podcast network that this podcast is a part of, the Cast Dice Network, if you go to the Cast Dice podcast uh, through Facebook, that's C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, and you message the page, you will get one person, and that one person is me. Hi, my name is Brad. Um, thank you to everyone who has been sending uh, messages. The Christmas messages and the New Year's messages at the end of last year were awesome. Thank you so much, guys. We really do appreciate it. Um, and we look forward to bringing you great Warlord content in 2020. So without further ado, I, I think it's time to uh, wish everyone a good night. And uh, we look forward to being with you again soon. Have a good one. Bye.